Professor Danny Dorling, you're Halford Mackinder, Professor of Geography here at the University of Oxford, well known for your work being. And of course, in relation to obesity, obesity mapping in the United States and the UK is, is common. We can think of the CDC maps, the Public Health England maps of the rates of obesity across the country and so on. So I'd like to engage you in this, this conversation um, in relation to mapping, the methods that you use in respect of mapping, and then to move on to uh, factors and issues related to obesity. So if you can start by telling us a little bit about your mapping techniques and okay. what's special about them. I don't think I've ever drawn a map of, uh, of obesity. Um, I, I, do, I do think carefully what I draw maps of. Uh, the key thing which is different about how I do maps is I actually stretch the map. Um, so I, I make the map of Britain look quite obese. Uh, I make areas which have got many people in a very dense place larger, and I make areas which are rural smaller, so that the population density of the map becomes even. I'm not the first person to do this. It, it's been done for over 150 years, but very infrequent. So I'm not the first person to do this. It, it's been done for over 150 years, but originally very infrequently. It's normally done uh, when you're trying to show election results, because if you show an election results on a normal map of Britain, the Conservatives always win, no matter how badly they do. Uh, and Liberals look, look OK in the rural areas. What people haven't realised is it's just as important for anything else that people do to use a map which is stretched if you actually want to see the real distribution. Otherwise, you're basically looking at sheep. Okay, yeah. so in relation to population size, so population density is yeah. an important factor. Yeah, you have to spread it out. So even if you draw a map of population density, if you draw the map of population density on this cartogram, it's called, these are called cartograms, you'll see that most people in Britain live in high-density areas. If you draw a normal map of population density, you'll see that most of Britain is at low population density. Both things are true. Um, you know, a, a random square on this country has only a few people in it. Yeah. But as far as people are concerned, most people in Britain think they're absolutely surrounded by people, because they are. Yeah. So in terms of thinking about social phenomena, it's very important to, to, be, to, be, to be thinking about population density. Oh, oh yes, uh, and if you don't do this, then the large majority of ethnic minority groups are squeezed into a tiny amount on the map. You, you don't see them. People who are poorer are squeezed into, into the map. People who are richer get a lot more space on maps, until you give them less space. So that, that brings me to a question. I mean, mapping is a way of uh, showing the world in particular ways and they reveal certain things and hides other yeah. things. Can you, can you speak to your concerns in that area? Oh, yes. You, I mean, you need to know what, what you're playing at or what kind of game you're playing at. Um, uh, it's often been called the God view. You know, this is, this is your, you're creating an imaginary view that you can never actually have where you're looking down from above, from the clouds. So already the viewer is superior to what, what you're seeing. And then you make a whole series of decisions about what you present and how you present things. And all of that can be made to look ever so neutral. But in fact, it, it is those decisions that determine the impressions that people gain from what we map. So the most famous epidemiological and human geography map in the world is John Snow's map of cholera mm. in the 1850s. Yeah. Um, and this is often used to say, oh, look at this great intervention. He drew a map. He saw these were the cases, and he took the handle off the pump in Soho. Yeah. 
the map was drawn after the event. It's really easy to see the map was drawn after the event because the pump is in the middle of the map. Ah. Right, right. <laughs> so, yes, so yeah. sadly, uh, the, the, the most famous great scientific breakthrough map yeah. has nothing to do with the scientific breakthrough. And in fact, the cholera wasn't actually in the water of the pump. So I think I'm aware of what I'm doing. I won't be completely aware. <laughs> the cultural geographers have for two decades talked about the power of maps and, and decomposing them and what people are trying to do and what they might subconsciously be trying to do. And it may affect things like, I probably chose not to produce a map of obesity for Britain because I thought it wouldn't be helpful. Mm. I can't remember thinking that. Um, yeah. can, you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I know what it would show. If you did a very basic map, proportion of people who are overweight or obese by some estimates, and you didn't correct for age, mm -hmm. the cities would look thin, near the coast would look fattest, the coast would actually be thinner because the very elderly have taken up all the coast of Britain. But you would just largely be showing age. If you took out age uh, and showed levels of obesity having allowed for age, you'd be showing social class. Um, and it could very easily be used uh, to play the blame the victim game, which we like doing in Britain quite a lot. Okay. And saying if only these people were less feckless and tried harder, um, and then somebody would put the map of obesity up against the map of life expectancy. Yeah. I've published lots of maps of life expectancy. Yeah. And they say, oh, look, one explains the other. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, it's just, uh, they, they may not even be strongly related. They're just, just two things that yeah. map onto each other. Are they, are they may not. I mean, we're still waiting for the deaths in America that, that were promised. Oh, uh, by Olshansky. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, it may... It may be that actually people can be a bit tubby and the overall effect of that, depending on what else is happening, and particularly mental health, yeah. may not be that bad. The nice thing, all these things, answers will come because there are massive cohort studies around the world. Yeah. And I, I'm optimistic, eventually the truth outs of all of this. But before the truth outs, you mean, take smoking. You, you had people telling you you needed to smoke to give yourself a productive cough. Um, so before the truth outs, uh, you get an awful lot of misinformation. And the misinformation is often shaded by snobbery and the pretensions of the day of the elite who tend to control what's, what's done okay. and what's said. And control the mapping, I, I assume. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the yeah. past, this was an expensive business. Yeah. A poor person couldn't draw a map. Yeah. Um, and we still haven't got Microsoft Map. I'm waiting, waiting for it. Yeah. You know, we've got PowerPoint, we've got Word. Mapping is the one thing we're still lacking, the basic every person's make a yeah. map. So returning to, to, to the God view, I mean, it, what came to mind was that if you construct the right kinds of maps, they're going to influence policy decisions and so on. Mm. And if you empower people through mapping, you could have alternative views on, on these God views, as it were. Oh, yes, you, you can change things. Um, my maps now get in, into GC. Is it now? A, a level exam papers where the question actually is what's wrong with this map <laughs> no, you really subtly alter people's thinking with maps uh, the classic would be that the Mercator projection which was a projection produced 500 years ago where if you have a compass and you follow it it's a straight line so it's a very useful for a ship going over the ocean carrying slaves but that yeah. out. but it's the same time the Mercator projection was, was heavily used in the United States on telly during the Cold War because it makes Russia look enormous. Right. Um, 
Now, conscious or subconscious, it's hard to say, but that projection is used much less now and it was used much less before. Okay. Um, so simply altering things, turning the map of the world upside down. People are amazed and shocked by that, which shows how much they've become used to a particular orientation. And that <coughs> orients their, their, their view of the world. And oh yes, because yeah. um, we tend to look, we, me and you are now looking at each other's eyes, so, yeah. so human beings tend to look at eye level. Uh, the dominant position is slightly over halfway up. Yeah. Power is there, which of course is where on the world map the USA and Europe is. Mm. Then you can choose anywhere, it can be in the middle, yeah. Uh, in terms of, terms of uh, longitude, but we tend to put the UK in the middle. Mm. Uh, in America, they tend to put the USA in the middle. Of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seems seems to be only natural to yeah. uh, put yourself in the centre if you can, um, and of course that influences everything else. Mm. In terms of sort of mapping and mapping in the UK and the power that maps have, what kind of uh, seeing some of the obesity maps in the UK, what kind of you know, problems do you see with them and what kind of message do you think they're sending to everyday people? I think they individualise it. I think they send a message saying, look, here's two different areas in Britain and these people manage to not get fat and these people don't. And look, these people who manage not to get fat, they're in the areas where people are economically successful and high paid and they must be strivers and the other ones must be kind of losers and we should just let them lose. Um, I think that is the message if you simply plot these things. I, I once plotted lung cancer deaths um, and it was interesting, there were, there were long rivers uh, in the north and it, it was where the highest rates of course of smoking had been in the past but, okay. but the working class communities along shipyards and, and so on um, were high. We, we tend to have a more nuanced idea about smoking now because it's gone on for such a long time. We know it is deadly. It's one, yeah. one thing you really shouldn't do. But the obesity rise, to my mind, is it's really something that just took off linearly about 1992 for children. It's only a couple of decades old. And so we, we still don't have the kind of understanding that we have about addiction and sales techniques uh, for obesity that we have about smoking. So you'd have time lags in the, the real data, as it were, in the maps, so giving you a kind of real-time view of, of things, and you might be finding associations between one thing and another when, in fact, they might be lagged by 20 years or more. Yeah, or if this were another country with a different social and political system, the map would be completely different. Okay. When I go to Japan, I am the fattest man in Kyoto for a week. When I go to the US, I'm slim. The, 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 the fundamental determinant of averages between countries are the countries, not the behaviour of the people. It's the country they were brought up in and they live in. Okay. Yeah. So countries matter? Countries really matter for obesity. We, we I think, are uh, neck and neck with Hungary to be the most obese country, country of Europe. We can't say much about change over time because we don't have, as far as I know, um, Good measures from the past. We do have really good measures of height over time, but mm. but you know without weight <laughs> we're a bit stuck. Yeah. But you, you when you look at the variation in, in obesity and overweight between affluent countries, you see see this incredible relationship between the most unequal equal countries, where the rich have a lot and the poor have very little, 
and the middle are struggling, they're the fattest. The most equal countries, when you think about Scandinavia and Japan, but the Netherlands and so on, obesity rates are much lower. Uh, but also the spend on advertising for fast food is lower. Uh, the use of walking and cycling is higher. You know, uh, and everything matters. And you can, you, we don't have enough countries. If we had 100 separate planet Earths, um, all doing something slightly differently, all not aware of each other in the universe, then we could collect a data set good enough to tease out the independent effects of, of country, advertising, and so on. We're stuck with one planet, we're stuck with around about 30 large affluent countries, it's different in poorer countries, and so there's a limit to how much you can prove uh, these things at country level, except for the blind and the obvious of just look at the averages, the, these are very different. Mm. Okay, that's that, that's very interesting. Can you can we sort of go on and talk about the obesity and, and voting preferences? Yes, yes. Now, this is a remarkable uh, blog. Uh, there's an academic in, in in East Anglia who who produced a blog. I think three weeks after the referendum in in it was the 23rd of June, 2016, the referendum. So this will be a blog produced in July 2016. And there was a kind of hunt on for what's the best correlate of the leave vote, best geographical correlate. Uh, the, the best that had been found immediately was migration. The, the fewer migrants you had in an area, the more likely you are to vote leave. Um, because people tend to be more scared of migrants when they're not used to migrants. And, and also because areas to which migrants don't go tend to be areas where there's a reason you wouldn't want to go there. Anyway, this, this academic got some data from Public Health England on the estimated obesity rates of local authority districts and found a correlation of 0.8, incredibly high, slightly higher than the migrant rate, and then wrote up a blog where he did, I've forgotten the exact word, but there was a kind of implication of short-sightedness, fecklessness, likely to go for the crisps, likely to vote for Nigel Farage, and with no evidence of, of, of that on, on voting. There's lots and lots of work on voting, there's lots of work on personality differences, on some people liking hierarchy, order, having a disgust of things that don't seem in their place and they're more likely to be right-wing and other people may naturally be a bit more hippie and sharing and caring and more internationalist. There's nothing uh, in the literature that actually links being obese to, to voting in a particular way. But, but what, what that study probably did with it is, one, Public Health, in, Public Health England's estimates of obesity are made using factors that probably tell you more about whether somebody's likely to vote leave than whether they're obese. But secondly, the leave areas of Britain did tend to be areas of few migrants. Migrants tend to be thinner, they're young, fit, highly educated. It's Middle England, it's quite mid Middle England spread. It's not the poorest areas, where in some cases, particularly children, are actually remarkably thin. Starvation, we've got starvation in Britain. It It's the squeeze middle, and and the real squeeze middle is um, above the bottom 20% of the population, below the top 20%, middle-aged, male, normally conservative or UKIP voter, owns their house outright, it's worth £250,000, their children can't get a house, they're renting, their grandchildren have got university fees to pay, they're annoyed, and they tend to be fatter than average but it's not their fatness <laughs> that's making them vote this way. It's everything else in their lives. It's a stereotype, but it's terrible. If you're, 
if you're a mapper like me, kind of part of your job is stereotyping because you know you are colouring in a area in which a hundred thousand people live with a single shade. Yes. So, the stereotype of who who voted leave most often were people who'd done everything right, how they were told to do it, worked hard, behaved well, known their place, and they had been able to form a family in their twenties and they had had full employment, but they saw this going away for the generations beneath them and they voted for their grandchildren thinking that by voting leave they will get back what it is that they had whereas what they actually had was greater equality they grew up at a time of greater equality it's interesting hugely hugely political yes yeah, yeah. well this it's well maps are you know you do I there's a lovely cartographer in Sweden called Janus Svego who wrote books with types like human cartography and he used to imagine being in a hot air balloon above Stockholm and Malmo where he had a special telescope. Every time a child was born a little red dot would appear. He could see the people moving around, he could map. And with surveys and censuses we can, we can begin to do that. So he wrote a lovely thing once about how he was drawing maps of, of Sweden and he could see the tears in the old people's eyes in the north as the young kept on moving down to the cities and leaving them behind. Um, so it's kind of political, possibly even a motive um, of ways of doing it. I, and it happens occasionally where I produce a series of world maps and it's produced by a computer program we don't do. And the world map of AIDS, of people dying of AIDS, actually causes people to cry, just the colouring and the the size of the countries in Africa where the deaths were highest and a bit of India and of course there's patriotism and jingoism about maps you know people people are happy to to die in effect for their map mm, absolutely they're very powerful it's, it's good that there are people like yourself who are developing techniques for mapping and thinking very seriously about what a map represents and does not represent mm. so uh, Danny Dorling thank you very much thank you